0: Well, John 7, 8 and 9 are shaped by the Festival of Tabernacles, which is a tabernacle season when the Lord commands people to rejoice. It's a time of celebrating crops, food, peace, dancing, music, guidance, freedom. It's a great time. This year it'll be October the 9th to the 16th for people who observe the festival. Eight days of celebration. In chapter 7, on the last and great day of that festival, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The promise of water, living water, rivers of living water. And though it seems as though the festival is now over and the crowds at large have dispersed, Chapter 8 is still shaped by those who were at the festival and yet the celebration goes sour. And sometimes that happens. celebrations become contentious. Think perhaps of a family gathering in our past when we came together for a well planned meal, and Uncle Martin had an argument with Auntie Sue and they left early and there was tension in the air, and suddenly the festival, the celebration, became contentious and disputed, and joy was replaced by conflict. Well that's what happens here in chapter eight of John. What we have John doing in chapter eight is describing a trial scene in a courtroom. The joy of the festival has too soon faded. John tells this chapter, this scene, as a courtroom scene. There are accusations, there are pointed questions, there is judgment, there are witnesses, It's a dramatic scene, Jesus under judgment. And though he continues to be at the temple, we believe close to the Court of Women, where there are four huge lamps hanging, and the Mishnah tells us that during the festival, this is the place of dancing and celebration, where, quoting the Mishnah, men of piety and good works dance through the night holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. And the Levitical orchestras cut loose. Some sources attest that this was every night of the feast, with the light from the temple shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. Jesus stands in a place where gifts and offerings are collected, he stands where the lights have brightly shone out through Jerusalem. He stands at the place of singing where orchestras cut loose. And he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Not these lamps, not these torches. I, emphasis, I am. Not just the light of Jerusalem, the light of Israel, I am the light of the world. This is the second great I am declaration after I am the bread of life in 635. I I am the light of the world. And rather than dancing and celebrating and agreeing and cheering, The enemies who were present there on that day put him on trial for this saying and in 8.13 they say, Jesus, you're a liar. Your testimony is not true. You have no witnesses for your outlandish claim. And the celebration is well and truly over. The language and tension of the courtroom... Is all through the passage. We've got words like witness, testimony, true, not true, testify, judge, judgment, trustworthy. The whole scene right through chapter 8 is a trial for the words, I am the light of the world. And by the end of it, his accusers have become judge, jury, and executioner. And they start to pick up rocks to crush him and kill him. The question in John 8 is, who is telling the truth? First question is, who are the witnesses? And Jesus, in eight fourteen and 15, is quite remarkable in what he says. First of all, uniquely to Jesus, only he could do this, Jesus said... I am my own witness and only I can be my own witness because I'm from heaven, not like you guys. You're from the world and I am utterly and uniquely trustworthy and I am my own witness. Later in John, we read that Jesus says, I am the truth, Jesus cannot lie. The integrity and truth of Jesus are unique He is uniquely able to be his own witness. So in 816 to 18 they say, well, who's your second witness? Do you need two? And he says, Well, God the Father is the second witness. There are two witnesses here, God the Father and God the Son. And they say, Well, where is your father? He's not here in the courtroom. We can't question him. We want to question the father and the answer of Jesus is superb. He says, well, the father is here actually and you don't see him because you don't know me. I and the father are one in complete agreement. And if you knew me, you would know my father and you would know that because I'm here, there are two witnesses, the father and the son. In John 14, Jesus is going to say, I and the Father are one. And I guess the baffling revealed mystery of the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit is John's point here. This trial is a trial on which God the Father and Son are accused and witnessing to the truth. These Pharisees don't know what they're doing. In the presence of pure truth, divine truth, united Father and Son truth. They are completely out of their depth. They are mounting accusations against God, Father and Son. There are two witnesses in the temple that day and the Father and Son are in complete agreement. Jesus turns everything upside down as he often does and in eight twenty-one to 30, he brings judgment back on them. Three times he declares God's judgment in this courtroom with the succinct phrase, you will die in your sin. There's a little bit of difference in 21 and 24 of chapter 8. 21, you will die in your sin. 24, you will die in your sins, plural. You will die in your sins. He judges his accusers and finds them guilty in the courtroom. Three times, if you do not believe that I am he, NIV translation, Literally, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The accused turns on his accusers. I am, he's using the name of God in Exodus. I am Son of Man, Son of God, unique, eternal. If you do not believe that I am, you're guilty. You will die. You're judged. God, Father and Son, condemn you. I will live. You will die in your sins. The one great sin in John is not to believe in Jesus. All the sins of character and behaviour and relational failure flow from the one great sin of not to believe in Jesus If you will not trust me and find me as your truth, Jesus says, you're guilty and you are judged. 8.30, even as he spoke, many believed. This courtroom has become a place of witness, which is one of John's great words, and people are trusting and believing in Jesus in this courtroom. They're being swayed by his witness, and then in 831 he says something outrageous, marvellous. He said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Courtrooms are all about the truth and about the accused being shown guilty or innocent. Jesus says, my teaching is truth, and if you become my disciple, you will know the truth. the truth will set you free. In the second section of the chapter, Jesus makes remarkable claims. I think the atmosphere changes from 8:31 onward. It intensifies. I think it's fast-paced, it's angry, there's shouting. Jesus is now taking the lead and bringing accusations. There's a fire in his eyes. Hatred is being stirred. People are shouting. And there's an abrupt ending as stones and rocks are gathered to throw and crush and kill. And Jesus slips away. But John 8.31 onwards is emotional. We need to see it that way. It's tense. Jesus is promising freedom and his accusers, presuming on their heritage, say, well, we've never been a slave to anyone. Our father is Abraham and if we're Abraham's children, we're God's children, we've been free since the history of Israel began. This is proud and presumptuous. Setting aside the humiliating years of slavery in Egypt and the marauding armies of Assyria and Babylon and even now Rome... His accusers are forgetting the judgment, the exile, as they claim God's favour and their freedom. But now Jesus says something in John eight forty four, which is mind-blowing. He says, actually, Abraham is not your father. Don't you know that your father is the devil and you are slaves of a murderer and a liar. John 8:44 is a remarkable text and I hope you'll sit with it in uh, the days and weeks to come. This is what Jew- Jesus says to Jewish leadership. This is what he says to Pharisees and leaders of Israel. He says you belong to your father The devil, and you carry out your father's desires, and he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks according to his nature, because he's a liar and the father of lies, and that's your father. You are born of a liar, you are born of a murderer. And you are just like the devil. If I'm a Pharisee on that occasion, having been at the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm either repenting now or I'm picking up stones. In a courtroom context, Jesus has taken main stage. His eyes are fiery, his accusers are humbled or rising up in murderous anger. He's claiming to be the one who can set them free. And then in 56 to 59, in a crowning statement, both in John and all of scripture, Jesus says this, commencing again with a truly, truly. He says, your father rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said. You've seen Abraham? Truly, truly, I tell you, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. It's been 2,000 years plus since Abraham. And Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and he loved what he saw. You're not his children. You're not like Abraham at all. How did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Well, perhaps. He saw it in prophecy or in type or in image or in the birth of Isaac or in the offering up of Isaac at Mount Moriah and the word of God about covenant and blessing, guidance and multiplication for the world. But Jesus says, your father, Abraham, whom you claim, he loved the thought of my day He rejoiced at the thought of my day and eternally I am before Abraham, the son of God. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, the trial is over. Jesus' accusers, humiliated and fuming, are picking up rocks and Jesus slips away. The time has not yet come. But this scene in John 8, tense as it is, is a preface to the actual trial when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and then crucifixion. And at that trial, the Roman governor says three times, He's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. Three times. And the Jewish leadership still beg for crucifixion. And Pilate says, Behold, this is the man. And he doesn't mean it this way, but he is actually saying, He's the real human. He's the true human. He's the one we should all be like. He is the man. He's the human. That trial picks up John 8, and at every point, Jesus is not guilty. He is the truth, and his accusers are guilty. Guilty in the courtroom of John 8. John 9 continues in the same manner, and in chapter 9, 5, Jesus heals a man born blind and gives him light and in 9.5, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he works a sign, which is another witness. Now, this is a remarkable chapter of scripture, and I trust you'll read it and enjoy the tension and the brilliance of Jesus under trial uh, these have been dark days for many of us over the last couple of years and in personal lives as well. Uh, we might say the world is longing for light. I'm sure throughout Europe in Ukraine, where the lights are off, the world is longing for light. And this past few weeks, we've been treated here in Sydney to the vivid displays and to the use of light to bring comfort and hope and friendship again to so many people who haven't been coming out of their houses much in the last couple of years. And one of the articles on Vivid said that Vivid Sydney bears the soul of our city through creativity, curiosity and change. Connecting our city to light artists, music makers, brilliant thinkers, And all creatives. And it struck me in thinking about John 8 and preparing for tonight that those three words creativity, curiosity, and change are great words for Christian discipleship. Because light is not just about clarity or a pathway or a direction or seeing where you're going, it is purposeful. I love the idea of Jesus as light leading us and guiding us. But it's not just about direction. It's actually also about joy and creativity and beauty and goodness. And so I thought just in finishing it would be worthwhile pondering in our own hearts what are we feeling creative about at the moment or curious about at the moment or what needs to change in the light of Jesus. We've spoken often this year about lament and grieving well in the light of the darkness that's around us and that's important but tonight in the light of John 8 let's talk about joy let's talk about the spirit and the heart of the Feast of Tabernacles because Tabernacles is a feast held to oppose the darkness to reach into the darkness with joy and dancing and Creativity and music and laughter and meals. Friendship, games and fun and curiosity and creativity. John says that the darkness will never overtake the light. It can't even understand the light. It can't put the light out. The light will always invade the darkness and overcome it. Christ is the light of the world. And for all of us who walk with Christ and seek to live in the light of Jesus, that seems to me like practising goodness when other people are dark. Practising friendship and kind acts to neighbours and sharing meals and living a good life in the face of the darkness. It looks like creativity. It looks like God's people embracing joy. And those who sing, keep singing. And those who make pots, keep creating. And those who are artists, draw and paint. And those who are poets, write and tell stories. And here at Alive at Five, imagination and creativity have always been part of the expression of the gospel of the joy of Christ. So, an encouragement for the next phase let our imaginations run riot in the light of Christ with joy and creativity and friendship and meals and goodness. Jesus is the light of the world. Let that spark your imagination. So, the people here in Springwood say, That church, look at the signs, look at the colours, look at the gardens, look at the light, listen to the singing, look at the people, the meals, the stalls, the reaching out. This is a place of friendship and light and love. This is a place where there's creative installations. We've had them many times here in this room, in the gardens around us. On one of the slides at the beginning of tonight, um, Nehemiah 8.10 was included, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's an act of rebellion to be joyful in times of darkness. It's an act of faith and hope to laugh and rejoice when it seems like the world's going into the pit. It's not naive and idealistic. It's revolutionary and gospel to be joyful because Jesus is the light of the world. They tried to kill him for saying that. I am the light of the world. Think vivid. Think imagination. Think creativity. Think goodness. hope and joy. Let's pray. Father we want to embrace the light that Jesus brings that is so powerful that darkness in its worst forms will never overtake, never diminish, never put out the light. Sometimes celebrations can go sour But we pray that the celebration of this church, the celebration of the gospel in the minds and hearts of these sisters and brothers of Christ, will flourish, expand, boom out with hope and joy in this year to come to a world looking for light. So grant us, Lord, the grace of thought and imagination and will and commitment and perseverance to walk in the light that is Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name.